The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, we'll be reading through verse 25 this morning. The word of the Lord. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 31. We will simply be reading verses 31 and 32 this morning. The word of our God. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Marriage can be glorious. In fact, marriage should be glorious for the Christian. For God designed marriage so that every marriage, and in particular every Christian marriage, would vividly portray the relationship between Christ and his church. The Lord, out of his perfect wisdom, mercy, and grace, has also instituted marriage in order to bring many good things into our lives and into the world. In the Garden of Eden, as we just read, even before sin entered the world, the Lord had declared, it is not good that the man should be alone. Therefore, the Lord created another image bearer, the woman, who equally bears the image of God to be Adam's companion, his helpmate, and that together the two of them would have dominion over creation. So among the good purposes of marriage are companionship and mutual support and actually mutual labor in advancing the kingdom of God. The Lord also desires that healthy God-honoring marriages 
will result in God the offspring. Now, not every couple is going to have children, but every child ordinarily is going to be best served if that child is growing up with both a mother and a father in the home who both love the Lord and who love each other. This means that marriage is not merely a mutually beneficial contract between two parties, a contract that can be dissolved whenever one or both of them decide that they might be happier with a different arrangement. Marriage and divorce impact children. They impact friendships. They impact the local church body. They impact the broader society. And through the children, they impact the future. Therefore, as our confession of faith rightly tells us, although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient for dissolving the bond of marriage wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. That's what God's word as a whole teaches us about marriage and divorce. Uh, The Lord has graciously established marriage. The Lord graciously commands us how we are to love one another within marriage, and the Lord graciously regulates our sin by both instituting and regulating divorce. The key thing for us to grasp in conjunction with this morning's passage is that the Lord's commandments surrounding marriage are not an end to themselves. It's not about getting the paperwork right. The Lord's commands about marriage and divorce are not an end to themselves. They're intended to serve God's grand purpose that if you're married, your marriage would reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. And therefore, we ought to take God's great purpose, which he's made explicit to us, and use that to interpret all the details and fit them together. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, fidelity is more than not cheating. Second, God institutes and regulates divorce. Third, the Lord sanctions remarriage for those who are divorced. And fourth, God's grace is greater than our sin. Uh, It's important, I think, for you to know where we're going this morning, so I want to repeat those four points for you, and that will give you sort of a roadmap of how I'm going to approach this passage. First, fidelity is more than not cheating. Second, God institutes and regulates divorce. Third, the Lord sanctions remarriage for those who are divorced. And fourth, God's grace is greater than all our sin. We begin with the truth that fidelity is more than not cheating. Please look at verse 31 with me. Jesus declares... It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
Now, when you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount in one sitting, uh, or if you've just been with us the past few weeks as we looked at the previous um, uh, matters that Jesus has been dealing with, this will jump out at you a bit. This is different. Previously, Jesus had said, you have heard it said, and then he listed two of the commandments. Thou shalt not kill, more literally, thou shalt not murder, and thou shalt not commit adultery. And what he did is he unpacked that those commandments run much deeper than many people in his own day, and many people in our day were treating them. He wanted to make clear that you couldn't get through life going, well, I've never actually killed anybody unjustly. If you hate your brother in your heart and you curse him, he's saying you're guilty of this commandment. And for the men, of course it's reversible for the women, but he's addressing it to men. If you look on a woman lustfully, with lustful intent in your heart, you are violating my commandment against adultery. But now we come to a new commandment, which in fact isn't a commandment at all. Uh, The Ten Commandments do not explicitly address divorce, and this phrase that he says, um, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. So we might ask what Jesus is doing if he's walking through the Ten Commandments and he kind of takes this detour. I think the easiest way to see this is he's continuing to unpack violations of the Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. First, he addresses it in terms of lustful intent. And now he's talking about an abuse of marriage and divorce as a type of adultery for which people will be held accountable before Almighty God. Please note that the people that Jesus is dealing with seem to have a fairly casual idea about marriage and divorce. What really matters is you get the paperwork right. You know, as long as you process everything, you're going to be fine before God, right? You know, let her, give her a certificate of divorce, dot the I's, cross the T's, and it'll all be fine. Regrettably, that's not just an idea back then. That's an idea in our own day. But please note how forcefully Jesus is condemning this practice. For such a practice runs radically counter to God's design that marriage should portray the relationship between Christ and his church. Fidelity, after all, is about a lot more than not cheating. I mean, suppose a friend of yours were to tell you that she's a member of a faithful church. You'd probably be encouraged by that. But then you ask her, what do you mean that your church is a faithful church? And she says, well, you know, we've, we've never made a golden calf to worship. And um, we don't worship Baal in our Thursday night uh, study hall, study meetings. We're we're faithful. And you would realize, wouldn't you, that she has a very, very, very inadequate view of what it means to be a faithful church. Uh, To be a faithful church means that you're going to take God at his word. You're going to love him and lean upon him. Yes, as sinners. We're going to keep being sinners. That's actually part of it. Confessing our sin and receiving his grace is a part of being a faithful church. But by his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to want to be part of the Great Commission, right? Discipling the nations. We're going to take proclaiming God's word faithfully with seriousness. We're going to seek to rightly administer his sacraments. Faithfulness in the church is about far more than not erecting idols. 
And faithfulness in marriage is about a lot more than not physically committing adultery with another person. It also impacts the way that we see both marriage and divorce. Now, Jesus is addressing men in verse 31. And while there's a, this is a bit reversible, there are actually some distinctions between men and women in marriage that I'm not going to address here. But I am primarily going to be speaking in terms of men and women the way Jesus is in this passage. He's addressing men who are supposed to be portraying the Lord's relationship to his church. Men, that is your awesome privilege if you are married. You are to be portraying the way that the Lord loves his church. What should that look like? Well, consider these words from Ephesians chapter 5. Those of you who are husbands, this is God's word directly to you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Let me say it plainly to all the married husbands here this morning. And to those of you who are future husbands as well, this is God's plan for your marriage. This is not advice. This is what God is calling you to do as a husband. Now, the people that Jesus is speaking to in this morning's passage, they seem to be saying, if it turns out that marriage isn't bringing you all the immediate happiness that you imagined, if your wife is less than the ideal wife, then by all means make sure you follow the right procedures in divorcing her. But as long as you follow the right procedures, you will be fine. Now, men, the truth is, your wife is not ideal. and She may be hard to live with. Right? Your wife may be hard to live with. But for what sort of church did Christ give his life? To put it mildly, the Lord of glory did not give his life for good and submissive people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't give you what you deserve? Well, now your Savior is calling you to follow him by loving your wife with a self-sacrificing love that seeks her good above your own, even when it might be extremely costly to do so. And furthermore, let me cut it straight. Your neighbor's wife might be easier to live with in the same way that your neighbor's yard looks a lot better than yours does. 
But the reason your neighbor's yard looks so much better than yours, greener and more attractive, is almost certainly because while you were ignoring your yard, your neighbor was carefully pulling the weeds, trimming the hedges, and making sure that the plants received just the right amount of water and fertilizer. The same thing could be true in your marriage. Now, thankfully, wives are a lot more than plants or a yard. But the Lord has wired women to respond to their husband's strong, loving, and godly leadership. And if your wife is a believer, she is filled with the Holy Spirit, who will lead and empower her to follow your godly, loving leadership. My fellow husbands, let's stop making excuses, and let's get to work. Fidelity means more than not cheating. Fidelity means that through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, you will seek to love your wife even as Christ loved and loves his church and gave himself for it. This leads to a very challenging verse to rightly interpret and apply to our lives. Uh, Some of you may leave here this morning still interpreting this verse differently than I do, and that is fine. I'm confessing in advance this is a hard verse to interpret. But I also want to let you know that the interpretation I am giving you is consistent with our church, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's consistent with the entire Reformed world that confesses the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so please don't just dismiss it as my own private opinion, although the details about how I exegete the passage, of course, are my own judgments. Please look at verse 32 once again with me. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There are two things we should remind ourselves of as we seek to interpret this verse in light of all of Scripture. First, Jesus has emphatically told us that he is not in any way negating the Old Testament law. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And to state the obvious, Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to teach us what it always meant, and to apply it deeply to our lives. Second, Jesus commissioned apostles to authoritatively teach the church what we are to believe and how we are to live. Therefore, in order to rightly interpret verse 32, we can't treat it like it just drops out of the sky. We need to interpret it in such a way that it fits perfectly with everything the Old Testament says about marriage and divorce, and everything the apostles will say about marriage and divorce as well. God is the author of scripture. He has one message for us. He is not contradicting himself 
in his word. With that in mind, let's make three interpretations and applications together of this verse. First, God institutes and regulates divorce. Now, when we consider that every single marriage is supposed to be a portrait of God's relationship, the Lord's relationship with his church, we will quickly realize that there is no such thing as no-fault divorce in the kingdom of God. Uh, that's what's spread through the Western world. But the, 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 the picture that God has is the church is supposed to be faithful, and of course the Lord always is faithful. And, and so for there to be a rupture in that relationship necessarily involves that the church is in horrible sin. In the same way, in a marriage, there's no such thing in God's eyes as a no-fault divorce. A rupture in marriage always involves at least one party being fundamentally unfaithful. Let me just say that again, because I know how easy it is to drag our culture's ideas into the church. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a no-fault Divorce. Now this truth has led a small minority of Christians to suggest that any Christian ever getting divorced is always wrong. I don't know if you've experienced that or perhaps that's a view that you hold right now. But there is a small minority of Christians who suggest that any Christian ever getting divorced is always wrong. This view argues that no matter what your spouse does, you should always forgive him or her, and that forgiveness includes remaining in the marriage until death. Now, there's an obvious problem with this view right in the verse that's appealed to to support it, because Jesus includes the word except here. Jesus clearly has an exception to the general rule of lifelong marriage in view, where one party has sinned in a particular way, sexual sin, that is egregious so that the other party can rightly divorce that person. While it might be useful for you to do a detailed study of all the commandments and illustrations of divorce in the Bible, because we also ought to note that God instituted divorce in the Old Testament, and his law, which is holy, righteous, and good, um, I want to give you a very simple way which I hope will convince you that it's wrong to argue that there's never a good reason for a Christian to get divorced. And it's very simple, just two steps. Step one, remind yourself that every marriage is supposed to portray the relationship between the Lord and his church. You know I'm going to hammer that one home this morning because that's at the heart of marriage. Step one is to remind yourself that every marriage is supposed to portray the relationship between Christ and his church, between the Lord and his church, and then remember that the Lord divorces Israel. That's all there is to it. The Lord obviously is righteous when he's divorcing Israel in the Old Testament. And therefore you can't say that getting divorced is always intrinsically wrong. And in fact, in this case, that's the whole point of marriage. It's supposed to be connected to the relationship that the Lord has with the church. By both the Lord's design, you can look at all the texts, but also by his explicit example, it is clear that divorce can sometimes be a righteous act for one party, the offended party, to initiate. I should say, because 
maybe some of you aren't familiar with the fact, or it's not coming to mind, verses um, where the Lord divorces Israel in the Old Testament. There's a number of places uh, where this comes up. I just want to give you one verse. You can write this down in your notes. It's uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. See, it turns out that this very rigorous position of there's never any appropriate place for divorce for Christians goes contrary to Christ's explicit teaching, contrary to the Old Testament, and strikingly against the Lord's own example. It puts God in the dock and finds him wanting. Beloved, that can't possibly be correct. On the other hand, we should remember and remind ourselves that the Lord divorces Israel for spiritual adultery. That matches up exactly with the exception that the Lord gives us in verse 32. It is not a carte blanche given to us that says, since the Lord divorced Israel for adultery, we then can get divorced for any reason at all. In fact, that's the very attitude that Jesus is condemning. Right? This is not some willy-nilly excuse. It's just pointing out that the Lord has established that under some very unique situations, it is right for a person to divorce their spouse. So, so far we've established, or at least I hope I've established, two points. First, fidelity is more than not cheating. Second, God institutes and regulates divorce. The third point has to do with a misunderstanding, at least in my view, of what Jesus is teaching. But it is a misunderstanding that, at least on the surface, appears to be very plausible until you try to put verse 32 in the context of the rest of Scripture. So the third point is simply this. The Lord sanctions remarriage for those who are divorced. We say that again because I want to make sure you understand at least what I'm arguing for. The Lord sanctions remarriage for those who have been divorced. And I want to divide this up into two issues. Right? There's two questions before us. Is it okay for the offended party to get remarried? And is it okay for the offending party who's been divorced to get remarried? Because people have argued that there's a distinction there to be made. Now, for many of you, the fact that uh, I'm asserting that the Lord sanctions remarriage for those who are divorced will not surprise you at all. Uh, The whole point of divorce in the Old Testament is that it actually dissolves a marriage. It's a type of marital death so that the parties are free to remarry. Otherwise, the Lord would have instituted separation rather than divorce. But the Lord actually institutes divorce as a way of dissolving marriages so that the parties can, in fact, get remarried. Well, that's right. 
But it's important to look closely at verse 32 to see that at least on the surface, it is plausible that Jesus is teaching that remarriage is always wrong after divorce. And so I want you to see that with me. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now focus on that last line for a moment. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. At least on the surface, isn't it plausible to read that as saying, divorce creates something like a permanent mark on a person's life so that um, they can never marry again. Both the person and the person who marries a divorced person are committing adultery in the eyes of God. Uh, Do you see that that's plausible if all you have is this verse? Now, with a little bit of work, we can see that this is clearly not what God is saying. And as I said, I think it will be helpful for us to divide up our approach into two questions. First, is it okay for the innocent party to divor- um, in a divorce to remarry? And second, is it okay, at least under some circumstances, for the guilty party in a divorce to remarry? And I'm going to give you a very short answer. It's not because this is not an important question or one that's been debated a lot. But I'm going to give you a very short answer because I believe this short answer entirely satisfies um, the, the need to support the argument that remarriage is, in fact, appropriate. First question. Is it okay for the innocent party in a divorce to remarry? In some sense, I think the answer should obviously be yes for a number of reasons. Christ's own words in this verse include an exception for sexual immorality and getting divorced. That is, getting divorced wasn't a sin, so what's the problem? And the purpose of divorce in the Old Testament was, in fact, for the sake of remarriage. Uh, Wouldn't it also be odd to act as though the innocent party in a divorce, the offended party, somehow has a black mark, or perhaps we should say a scarlet letter on them throughout their lives, uh, as though they're the guilty person when, in fact, they were the victim. Nevertheless, there's a simpler and, I think, more powerful answer to that question, given that marriage is intended to portray the relationship between the Lord and his church. The Lord, the innocent party who divorces Israel, gets remarried. It's really that simple. The Lord, the innocent party who divorces Israel, gets remarried, Since marriage is supposed to be built on the relationship between Christ and his church, um, that actually is through his own example saying that remarriage is appropriate, at least in this case for the innocent party. Now, you can go through and look at all the texts, and, and I welcome you to do that, but I honestly think that that's a sufficient justification for remarriage after divorce. But what what about the guilty party? Does the offending party have a permanent mark on their lives so that while the innocent party can remarry, the guilty party cannot? And the answer, once again, I think, becomes obvious once we think about the relationship of the Lord to his people. Because Israel, the offending party, remarries again. And we can't possibly think that that's wrong because they remarry the Lord. 
It's God's intent. He calls his people that he has sent away back to himself into that covenant relationship as part of the bride of Christ. And so at least in some circumstances, divorce and remarriage is appropriate even for the offending party. If that's so, and I think it is, and I don't want to make that hesitant here, I think that is so, what is Jesus driving at in verse 32? Which plausibly on the surface could have been taken in another direction. And I want to suggest that Jesus isn't saying that remarriage in itself involves adultery. Jesus is addressing a very particular type of divorce and remarriage. Jesus is condemning husbands and wives just being swapped around without any regard for God's intention that marriage be a lifelong bond of faithful love. Jesus is telling men that if they are willy-nilly divorcing their wives for the sake of marrying another woman, even before the ink is dry on their divorce certificate, they are acting in a fundamentally unfaithful, that is, adulterous manner. And they're doing so before the living God, who knows their intentions and their thoughts. And just as the Lord will hold them guilty of adultery for looking upon another woman with lustful intent, the Lord will hold them guilty of adultery if they treat marriage as though it is just about getting the paperwork right. I think that's what Jesus is addressing. I mean, what if you're not the one that's getting divorced, but you're rushing to marry a woman who's getting divorced for the sake of marrying you? What if this woman is not getting divorced because her husband committed adultery, biblical grounds, or as we see in 1 Corinthians, because she's been abandoned by her husband? What if the only reason why this woman is getting divorced is she's getting divorced to marry you? They sign the paperwork, boom, you rush into marriage. Jesus is saying that's appalling. That's adultery. You're treating God's holy institution of marriage with crass indifference. And Jesus is not just giving them a hypothetical. There's a very practical and prominent example of this that's going on right in that day in Judah. See, Herodias divorces her husband Philip, of all things to marry Philip's brother, who happens to be the king. That was her purpose. She divorces Philip to marry King Herod. Now, you might recall that John the Baptist lost his head over that. John the Baptist proclaimed publicly that it was unlawful for King Herod to have Herodias as his wife. Herod served up his head on a platter to his stepdaughter. Do you realize that Jesus is saying the very same thing? By the way, something we often take for granted, but we shouldn't, is that Jesus is a man of extraordinary moral courage. John the Baptist gets arrested for proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, The next thing we're told is Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist loses his head for proclaiming the king is committing adultery and he's engaged in an unlawful marriage. And Jesus is proclaiming the very same message. See, the issue is Herod can't wash his hands and go, hey, I'm not the one getting divorced. Right? Jesus is saying, no, you're guilty too. She's guilty of adultery. You're guilty too. 
And Jesus is then turning to us and he's applying that lesson to all of us. Just because the king's doing it doesn't mean it's okay. Just because people in Hollywood are doing it doesn't mean it's okay. So you can't treat marriage like that. And so we could say it quite bluntly. If you simply marry another person who's getting divorced for the sake of marrying you, and, and as soon as the ink on the paperwork is, is done, it's not even dry, you're rushing into marriage, Jesus is saying, you are both committing adultery before God. And unless you repent, he will hold you accountable for that sin. See, divorce really does end a marriage. The Lord really does sanction, by his own example, those who are divorced getting remarried. But the divorced person should seriously grieve over the death of their first marriage. They should repent over their own sin if the divorce was their own fault. And they should seek to apologize and bring healing to anyone that their sinful actions have harmed. Then they should only marry again, and of course only in the Lord, if they are able to do so out of a genuine commitment to love their new spouse until death do they part. Now, if we're approaching God's law in general, or the institution of marriage in particular, looking for loopholes, or imagining that we just need to get the external procedures right, then we are not acting with love and faithfulness toward God. And beloved, Jesus is calling us to something better. Nevertheless, it's very important, nevertheless here, we should not allow the abuse of God's law by those who are trying to get by on technicalities lead us to ignore the fact that our Lord, both by his explicit teaching and dramatically through his own example, institutes divorce and sanctions remarriage for those who are divorced. And this leads us to an important reminder with which we will close this morning's sermon. God's grace is greater than our sin. And beloved, that includes our sexual sins. As Western culture has lurched toward no-fault divorce and now towards normalizing sex outside of marriage, it is natural that many Christians would want to respond to this abuse of God by drawing a sharp line in the sand. That's a natural thing to do, and in many cases, it's the right thing to do. But there are two dangers with that. One danger is we completely overemphasize sexual sins in the context of the whole Bible. You know, there are a lot more sins in the Bible than sexual sins. Uh, I've often thought about the fact that if I were to tell you that someone, Bob and Susie, um, are living in sin, right away you all think, well, they must be terrible gossips, right? or coveters, or materialistic? No. You're thinking about sexual sins. Now, admittedly, that phrase has become an expression that we've attached to sexual sins. But it's become so precisely because those are the sins we most talk about. And and I want to remind you that those sexual sins are not the only ones that God cares about. Second, Christians sometimes treat those who have committed sexual sins as though they are in a special class, as though their sins are in a special class that leave a permanent mark on their lives or on your life. Now, I'm fairly confident there are people here this morning, even if you don't think this way, but if I gave you an essay test to write, you wouldn't write it out this way. 
even if you don't think this way, feel this way about sexual sins. Beloved, I have good news for you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. What sin? All sin. In Christ you have been made whiter than snow. But that does require us to make one final application. In light of this morning's passage, and it is this, God's grace is not intended to make you think less of marital faithfulness. The fact that God regulates our sin, forgives our sin, is not to lead us to have a light view of sin. God's grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card in terms of how we are faithful or faithless in our marriages. The grace of God is intended to lead us to personal sanctification and faithfulness in all our relationships. And so I declare to you this morning the will of God for your lives if you are married. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved and loves his church. And women, respect and honor your husbands. Amen.